women on the wing. And he got one man down just being him. He wearing Gucci. So he Gucci. He got to know me all drinking Ducey. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to today's episode of the Fluid Football Podcast. Today, we are joined by a special guest, Nick Moen. Nick, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm a fan of the show. <laughs> uh, it's good to hear. Uh, Jacob, how are you feeling today? Yeah, I'm good. If, if you weren't aware already, Messi broke another record. Uh, 12 consecutive seasons in La Liga scoring at least 20 goals. So, you know, nothing new. For being honest, but it was against Mallorca, so we'll, we'll put a little. <laughs> I mean, it, it was impressive, nonetheless. But uh, you know what we're doing today is uh, not going to be talking about Messi. Uh, we're going to be talking about the uh, United States uh, soccer as, as a whole. Uh, we're going to touch on uh, the men's team, the women's team, and just kind of our own experiences with that. Um, you know, Nick, Nick, I think is the, the biggest fan I know, you know, of American <laughs> soccer. Um, so yeah, we can just, you know, start, um, with our own experiences in club soccer. Um, yeah, I guess I'll go. Um, so, you know, I, I played club soccer up until high school, uh, cause then I had a conflict with another sport. So then I played high school soccer only. Um, so I played, um, a couple of club teams in, in Michigan. Um, you know, to be honest, like, you know, I was okay, you know, it was nothing special. Um, but, you know, one thing that's always stood out to me was, you know, the cost of it. And, you know, I, you know, my parents were fortunate enough to be able to afford that. And, you know, but, you know, I always wonder, it's like, you know, I'm okay, you know, I was fine. And, but, you know, I wonder how many kids are out there that, you know, you know, are better than me or, you know, could really be something special, but, you know, can't afford um, to play, you know, uh, club soccer in America. And I think, I looked at an article and it was something like, you know, soccer is more expensive than basketball and football. And so it's, you know, so cost prohibitive in the U.S. And Zlatan even came out and said something, um, you know, he said he's paying, you know, $3,500 for his kids to play. And he said, you know, that's just wrong. Um, so, yeah, that's just something, you know, I, I agree with. And, um, you know, yeah, I guess, you know, what do you guys experience been the, the club soccer? Yeah, I played club soccer uh, all the way in middle school up until – the end of high school. Uh, I'm from a pretty small town in Michigan, but we have a pretty, uh, you know, decent club. Uh, a lot of players, you know, moved on to the next level. I have a couple of good friends that play at Western Michigan who actually beat Michigan this year uh, in like a non-conference game. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think club soccer was uh, a pivotal part of, you know, me growing up. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of issues, I think, with, with club soccer uh, in the U.S. You know, I think in, in Europe, um, yeah, most of club, most of academy soccer is all, you know, paid for by the club, uh, which I think the U.S. is trying to implement. Um, but there's still a few, you know, clubs that, you know, it's partial pay to play. Um, but a lot of the major clubs are making it where, you know, they pay for all your schooling, they pay for, you know, your housing your tournaments, uh, something I wish maybe would have been, uh, in place when I was growing up, you know, maybe would have had more opportunities. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, and, and that kind of, I was going to touch on that. Um, I think all of us were, uh, fortunate enough to be able to, you know, cover the costs of playing club soccer growing up. So, um, myself personally, I, I did play club up until the end of high school. Um, 
for a club team called FC Monco. Uh, most of that team now uh, has moved on to the next level playing at schools across you know, Philadelphia and, and throughout the country. Um, but while you know, I feel like most of this episode might be a bit of a critique on the soccer system in the United States and, and honestly a critique on the, national, the, the men's national team, uh, but I do want to give an example, Nick, of, of what you were talking about, um, which is the Philadelphia Union, the, you know, the professional team nearest to me. So I was a part of the Union Juniors program growing up. So like 20, I'd say 2010 to 2016, I was a part of the Union Juniors, which was at the time the Union's only feeder system. So you had 40 to 80 players representing each calendar year uh, training each week. And then in 2013, they established uh, a school, YSC Academy, yeah. uh, for, for youth prospects to enroll in. It was a choice. You had kids at the school that weren't even on, you know, part of the Union Juniors program. It was still just kind of in the making. And so very soon after that, from the Union Juniors, they created the Union Academy, which took some players from the program I was a part of and put them into the youth competitive squads. and. Over time, the, you know, the staff slowly replaced the Union Juniors players with kids coming in from across the country and across the world. Um, and like you said, the Union handled their housing, their education, and they would just play for the team. And that system kind of sustained itself and improved. And now we see the Philadelphia Union is, is sort of an example for a lot of teams in the MLS in that they have a lot of homegrown players. So. Uh, Brandon Aronson is is one who was in my class with the Union Juniors, who is now one of the key players for the Union, which is really cool. He just had his first uh, U.S. men's national team call up within the last few months, which is so cool. Um, uh, I know Mark McKenzie is another one who's a year older, who, who's, again, a key player for the Union. But all in all, I think the Union's done a, a pretty good job, um, you know, kind of following the European model. And again, setting an example for other clubs across the country. But, you know, while it is great, they did give that financial support to the vast majority of their participants. They give financial aid, things like that, which isn't the case across the rest of club soccer, like we're talking about, which, again, is a big issue. Yeah. And, you know, I think one frustration for myself and maybe Nick, you know, living in Michigan, we don't have an MLS club. So, you know, the nearest club for, to us, um, to me at least, was Columbus Crew. So a lot of my friends who were, you know, good enough to play in academy, they would go to the Detroit area, and they had a couple of academy teams there. Um, but, you know, it just, you know, I think it would be really vital for, you know, Michigan to get an MLS team just for that reason. And then also, um, I don't know how much you guys know about this, the, the, the U.S. Um, had a development academy, but they recently just scrapped, um, you know, this year. and. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, I don't know, you know, a whole lot about the Development Academy. I just, you know, it seems like that would be the best route for, you know, youth to develop in, in the American system. Yeah, uh, that that academy uh, has produced, like, like that's where Landon Donovan started, Marcus Beasley. I think they do it in uh, Florida, and you mm -hmm. kind of move down and you live at the IMG Academy. Uh, I think Polistic was maybe, like, the last age group that kind of finished there around that age group, but you know, that academy is pretty pivotal in producing players, you know, because you're living with each other, you're going to school with each other, uh, you're playing games together. I think it's for the U17 national team. I'm not sure. 
uh, uh-huh. and that's a really important age group, especially in the U.S. because we seem to have a lot of success there. But maybe as they grow up, some players get lost in the system. So is that where? Do you know if that's where Josh Sargent came from? Because I mean, we'll be talking about him actually. Bit, yeah, but. I think he. Yeah, I think he might have been the last his age group, maybe because I think yeah. he's younger than Pulisic. Right, because I know he was a part of that. You know, that pool of players in the what was it, the U seventeen World Cup, and I know that's yeah. where he really kind of kind of made more of a name for himself. But you know, it's really interesting for sure. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think, you know, the onus is more. Yeah, yeah go I ahead. I was just going to say, um, that I think the onus is now more like on MLS clubs and stuff. And I, I'm not sure that's, you know, uh, maybe it's unfair for those clubs that have to burn that, you know, I think maybe you'd like to see the U S soccer federation, you know, be more involved, but I'm not exactly sure why, you know, I think maybe financially there, there are some issues there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's unfortunate to see that. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, not everyone is discovered at, at such a young age that they can be taken in by this academy system that, that we kind of have going on. You know, obviously, certain kids mature earlier, leaving a lot of kids out. And so the, the vast, vast majority of kids are left out, of course, because these academies can only take so many kids. So, you know, they have to develop on their own through whatever resources they can find. And, you know, in other words, that's through whatever local club teams they can become a part of. And because of the substantial cost to compete, that pay-to-play structure that we've, we've spoken about, you're leaving out potentially an entire socioeconomic class that could, could very well contribute. And this doesn't even, you know, this cost to compete doesn't even con- include other considerations like transportation, you know, where people are in a position where their parents can get them to practice two, three times a week, travel far for games, all of that. And so that's, again, a big part of the problem. I would say. Yeah, and, then, and going off that, um, uh, you know, in that book, um, Soccernomics, which Dr. Szymanski wrote, he um, actually looked at, you know, I think it was the 1990s England squad, and he looked at all of the players' backgrounds, and all but one of them, you know, their their parents were, you know, working class professionals. They they were, you know, they weren't middle class. They weren't, um, you know, you know, rich families that they came from. They're all, you know, working class. And, you know, I think, you know, it's not, it's you can't say 100%, you know, that if a player is coming from a lower class background, that they're going to be a good soccer player. But I think, like you said, you're leaving out an entire socioeconomic class is just, uh, I think, unacceptable. And I think for soccer, you know, around the world, it's, it's a game for, for everyone, right? It's supposed to be, you have a ball, you can play anywhere. And there's just too many barriers for entry in in this, in this country. Um, And I think that affects, you know, who plays the game, you know, um, you know, soccer is kind of seen as like a, a white collar, like a, you know, a white sport, I would say. And, you know, that's just really not the case almost everywhere else in the world, right? So I think that's that's one frustration, um, you know, I have personally. I, you know, I, I've been on a team where, you know, I'm the only one kid who's who's not white, and, and it's just it's not a fun experience. So, um, you know, that's that's a couple of things that, you know, the U.S. obviously needs to do better, do better with. Yeah, and I think clubs in Europe, you know, usually they they invest in their players to gain, you know, a profit by maybe selling them to a bigger club or, you know, putting them in their first team. I'm not sure MLS academies really have that idea in mind, you know, because I think a lot of MLS teams aren't playing young American kids, uh, you know, consistently. Uh, I looked at a, a stat, the Liga MX actually has a new rule where you have to have, I think it's eight uh, Mexican players on an 18 roster, and there can only be 10 international. Uh, I'm not sure if the rest of the world does that, but that's something in the U S that I think, you know, if we're trying to build MLS, we should 
you know, build your, your home country's players as well, you know, to, you know, cause the big goal is, you know, for the national team to be successful, you know, if you have a successful national team, your league is probably going to be just as successful. So, you know, I don't yeah, know. no, for sure. For sure. Um, and and kind of like you're saying, we've, we've been able to get away with for the last, you know, five, six years, the, the MLS has been able to get away with, Oh, you know, we're bringing in these headline players, uh, now sit back and enjoy Zlatan in the MLS because he's a big name. But at the end of the day, the U.S. national team is not competing. And, and there's a reason that the top five European leagues, Italy, Spain, England, Germany, France, have the best national teams. You know, they're investing in their own development. I know England, uh, I forget the, the number. I know this from football it's manager. A, it's a, yeah, it's a, yeah, yeah, it's from football manager is the only reason <laughs> I know. But, but uh, I, I think Brazil is, you know, a great example of, you know, a country where, you know, socioeconomic status is completely discredited when you're looking at the players who make it to the big stage. You have a lot of players coming out of the favelas, the slums of Brazil, uh, you know, players growing up poor with one parent. I know Gabriel Jesus is a, is a great example. Marcelo, Thiago Silva, Casemiro. Neymar. And it's really cool because, you know, we can actually see explicitly how this has influenced and defined the, the culture of Brazilian soccer. Um, the play style is very technical. There's a lot of flair. It's the street style football that a lot of these players grew up playing as kids. I think that's a really cool thing that we see now. Yeah, I think um, and if you look at another country, you know, Germany, I think after 2002, I think they had a really disappointing World Cup and they put together this committee to look at, you know, what, what they can do better. And, you know, their conclusion was they need to invest in, you know, youth development. And that's something the Bundesliga has done, you know, tremendously. I think that's just a, a great league. You know, we've talked about that before, just for, you know, young players to go there, um, you know, whether they're German or not. Um, and then, you know, on the American side of things, um, I think, you know, this is also something that, you know, Dr. Szymanski talked about, about the, you know, the promotion relegation thing. And I think that that is another fact that's hurting um, America because, you know, if you don't have these local clubs that are, you know, staying viable, right, they're, they're trying to move up, you know, they're not, you know, you're, you know, these local clubs are not recruiting the, the local players, right? So the, the, the only outlet for, you know, the best players are, you know, how does it, like at 20 MLS teams. And, you know, that's just not enough. I think if you're going to be able to develop talent, you know, you have, if you really want, you know, um, you know, clubs that to be able to develop talent, you have to have, um, you know, a reason for them to, you know, actually train youngsters and, and be invested in their local community. We need, we need a, a capitalist system. I mean, a merit based. Yeah. <laughs> There's really no pressure uh, in MLS, especially, you know, if you, get last place there's no pressure that you're gonna be relegated it's just like okay i guess we'll just play you know till the end of the season you know get our paycheck and move on i think that you know i think one of the biggest errors in u.s soccer that you don't see around the world is is college you know we're all in college but i think college soccer you know the age from 18 to 21 is a huge you know developmental period and the college season only really lasts three months the rest of the year you're kind of on your own weightlifting i think they play a couple spring games but uh, they actually recently just passed a, a contract to extend the season between the two college semesters. Uh, I think it was the University of Maryland coach. But, you know, if you look at our World Cup roster from 2014, have it written down, uh, 11 out of the 23 players were, you know, went to college. Uh, most of them really? going four years. I always, you know, Clint Dempsey went three years in college, which 
I think is super surprising with how successful he was in Europe. Yeah, that's you know? crazy. Yeah. It's, actually, but, it's interesting. The players who tend to make the biggest, you know, have the biggest careers and longest careers are the ones who start at such a young age. We see Mbappe's, I mean, at least on the right track. But like, I, I, yeah, I had no idea Dempsey played three years. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing about, you know, college soccer is, you know, I think you said they're extending the season now. But it is such a, um, you know, poor system because you have three months and you have to pack all these games in. So it's, it's terrible for the player's body. So you hear all these stories of players just, you know, you know, having all these multiple injuries because they're, they're playing so many games per week. Um, so that's just another problem, I think, with, with college soccer and the NCAA specifically. Um, but, yeah, I think, mm-hmm. I think more players nowadays um, are looking to go abroad if they're, you know, at the top. Um, you know, if they, if they think that, you know, they're elite, you know, they're probably not going to go to college. Um, but, yeah. No, it's definitely promising to see, uh, you know, more American players uh, even in the youth teams, in, in teams in the Bundesliga and, and the Eredivisie and, and abroad. Um, but, you know, like you said, you, you brought up the roster. I think part of what we wanted to do today was run through the current U.S. men's national team roster and, you know, just talk about the talent that we think is there, you know, who, who we could see playing and lining up for us over the next number of years. Um, and, and, you know, I think we're going to see with the names that we, that we do pull out, the majority of them are going to be abroad in, in, in some way. So, um, but with that, do we, I think we should just run through starting with the goalkeepers that we have. And uh, the goalkeeper seems to be the only position that we haven't had a problem with for the last couple of decades. Obviously Tim Howard was, you know, one of the greatest American players of all time. He's a hero, uh, but, but he, you know, no longer, no longer Don't forget here. about Brad Guzan. Brad Guzan. <laughs> oh true didn't we have brad fradel as well yeah yeah fradel but uh yeah yeah but uh you know what's the goalkeeper position looking like for us post tim howard you know i think uh i think the next world cup uh for me it's really between zach stefan and uh i think brad guzan can play in the next world cup i think he's only 33 or 34 maybe um I think he's 35 right now okay yeah. so he'll be what 37 Roughly uh, 37, 38. You know, I, I, you, you can play a little bit older and as a goalkeeper. I think with the experience that he has, you know, he's been on two World Cup rosters. I think Zach Steffen's young, but he's a little inconsistent, gets injured a lot, especially in Germany. Uh, you know, two years' time, I don't know. But for me right now, I think Brad Guzan's reliable, he's consistent, and he's got a lot of experience. Interesting, yeah. And um, I feel like that's always the debate here with the national team. It's, you know, it's youth versus experience, talent versus experience. I mean, you know, Zach Steffen's, you know, starting for Dusseldorf and he's on loan for Man City and Guzan's, you know, in the MLS. And I mean, I feel like Steffen would be the, the better choice. I mean, just talent wise. I understand like in terms of experience, you know, Guzan's ha- has that. But I think, you know, Guzan would probably be, you know, a great backup. And I, and I think Stefan, I heard he's, um, he might be coming back to Man City to um you know be the backup there so that's just something to keep an eye on fun fact about zach stefan he uh you know like a couple other big players has philly roots played for my old academy and then and then went to onto the union academy uh for the end of his youth career but the little, little fun fact it's, it'll be cool if he uh does you know get to start for us in the next world's cup do you know but, him? uh I, I no, i've never met him he's you know he's a few years older but uh okay so it's still kind of cool. It was a, it was a small uh, club, so it's kind of 
Hi, right, cool. Um, but goalkeeper, I think, you know, you've, you've two solid options there. And so it's, it's, again, that's yeah, a good that's problem good. to have. And I think, yeah. you know, okay. So, so onto the back line, let's start with the more promising side of the back line, the right side, <laughs> uh, which, you know, has a couple prospects. Avi, I want, I want to hear your thoughts on DeAndre Yedlin first. Okay. So we're going right back. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I like DeAndre Yedlin as a personality. I think he's a really nice guy, a really interesting guy. I love watching him, you know, bomb down the right wing. You know, he's a, he's an exciting player, you know, defensively, he, I do have some question marks, you know, he's not the most consistent performer, but you know, bottom line, he's playing for a Premier League club in Newcastle. So, you know, he has, he has the experience and you know, he's played in, um, he played in the 2014 world cup. He's been around the national team. He's captain of the national team. Um, so, you know, he's always a reliable option. Uh, you know, you have a, you know, Reggie Cannon, he's, you know, 21 years old. He plays for FC Dallas. He's, um, you know, kind of a more promising guy. You know, he played against, I think he played against Mexico last year and he kind of struggled in that game. So, you know, it's, once again, it's, it's against youth versus experience, but, you know, Yedlin's not old by any stretch. He's only 26 years old, but I would put Yedlin ahead of Cannon for now. Uh, what, what do you think, Nick? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, I know Cannon's getting some interest from Europe. You know, maybe in two years' time, he'll be in Europe and, you know, be playing at a high level and more consistently than Yedlin. I think Yedlin is – he's really pacey. Uh, I think he would even be better at, you know, a full – like a wing back almost, you know, where they yeah. – if he played a three in the back. I think his defensive game kind of lacks a little bit. He had some – you know, I haven't watched many of his games recently, but – uh, I know in the World Cup when he went against Eden Hazard, you know, he kind of dominated the whole game. But, you know, that was six years ago now. Uh, I think for me, it'll probably be, it'd probably be Yedlin. I think his pace and I think he's getting better at crossing the ball into the box. So I think his pace just outweighs everything. Now, what are we saying about Serginho Dest? I'd put Dest at left back. I know he plays well, – uh, you know, I think – He's going to probably play on the left because the left yeah. is just a weaker side. Right, right. Uh, I mean, agreed. That's what I was – I mean, I guess that's that's basically the whole conversation for left back as well, I think. I don't think there's much notable competition there. It's just a matter of, I guess, you know, we are playing Des out of position. Would you prefer to see him in a, a three-back formation as like a, a left mid kind of thing? Um, I don't know. I mean – I think, you know, he's obviously a right back more comfortably on the right side. I've, I've watched a couple of his games at left back. The thing when, you ha- when you're right footed and you play left back is you're able to cut in. Uh, and maybe you see passing lanes that you wouldn't usually see if, you know, you open your foot up to the left side of the field. I still think that I'd rather have him than some of the other players they've brought in, like uh, the guy that Anthony plays for Robertson. Yeah, or the guy that plays for Montreal Impact. I think he plays for Nashville now forget his name but you know I think a lot of people just aren't ready for I think left back's an area that we've struggled in the U.S. for a long time Mm -hmm. uh, except for when Demarcus Beasley is there but you know I love Beasley (laughs) yeah legend yeah Anthony Robinson's interesting because I mean he's he's playing for Wigan Athletic right now but he was supposed to uh, move to AC Milan but then he failed his medical unfortunately Um, but you know so he's back at Wigan Athletic so hopefully he gets uh, another move how do you fail your medical? He uh, had a heart issue, apparently. So uh, irreg- irregular okay. heartbeat, it says. But I, I just read that he's actually um, he's okay now and he's back training. So that's good to hear. 
Interesting. That's good to hear. You also you, you always have uh, Tim Ream at, at left back too. Pull him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he can play in the center and the left, but yeah, he, he's uh, I don't know. He, he's never really impressed me, at least for the United States. I mean, I've seen him play at Fulham a couple times, and he seemed pretty solid, at least at center back. But mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'd like him on, on the left wing. Mm-hmm. Very fair. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the center backs. Uh, I mean. Two words, John Brooks. Um, yeah, we're going to be a, a bit reliant on him moving forward, but I'm okay with that. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember uh, 2014, that of goal. Of course, oh, you yeah. better remember. But, I mean, I, uh, I, I don't remember a time I've been happier ever in, in, in watching a game of soccer. I was, dude, Ghana was like, like our, our rival because they knocked us out of 2010. Like, uh-huh. And I actually like Ghana because they're like such a fun team. Like they're, they – such a small nation but they don't they don't care they like play up to you know whoever they're playing and mm-hmm. um yeah it, it was it was great to see uh you know the u.s finally beat ghana um, <laughs> that was a great game. and i had never heard of john brooks either he was just yeah. like yeah funny story about that goal is i think he actually dreamed the, the night before the game that he was going to score the winning goal really you know uh, really i have chills yeah. i have chills yeah. That, oh, what a moment in American history, if we're being honest here. I love watching that Dempsey goal, that first one. That oh, was so man. sick. That yeah. ball roll, and then he just hits it off the post. Uh, oh, my God. I'm getting all worked up as you're doing this. <laughs> I have goosebumps. Uh, this is, uh, we, we, need, we need the United States back in the World Cup. We need moments like these. Yeah, we really the do. worst – one of my worst memories, actually, it was in high school soccer. We just won our, like, local – like it was basically our, like, cup tournament for, like, the local city. And, you know, we come back on the bus, you know, we're all, everyone's really happy. I look at my phone and we're losing to Trinidad and Tobago. And I was like, are you like, what? I just couldn't even process that. And it was just uh, such a high and such a low in such a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. But uh, we can get into that later, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, so what's the rest of our center back situation looking like? Because John Brooks is definitely a promising option. But but you can't just play one. So yeah, I think Aaron Long is is one that's um, you know always pointed out. He plays for uh, the Red Bulls in New York. Um, you know, he, I think he was he was linked to to a, a move to England. Uh, unfortunately, you know, New York was asking you know much higher than you know what he's worth apparently. So you know, you would like to see him get that move to Europe. Uh, I'm not sure if it's gonna, ever going to happen. You know, he's. Yeah, uh, I think another I, – I would go with Aaron Long as well. Um, you know, his growth the last few years, he started – he played four years of college soccer, and then I think he was drafted to Seattle and played in the USL for like three years. Uh, and then they won – and then he moved to Red Bull's USL team. They won USL and then found himself in the first team as a center back. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, I would put him on the right side and uh, Brooks on the left. But I think there's a few other options that, you know, they could look into. Walker Zimmerman is a pretty promising yeah, player. Yeah. Um, and Matt Miazga, I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten about. Right. Uh, now, now if I'm being honest, I, I definitely I, if I'm being honest, I haven't heard much about Matt Miazga since, you know, he, he moved to Chelsea. Um, He's on loan with Reading. Right, right. The thing is, he, you know, obviously he didn't get the playing time he was sent on loan maybe a couple times. So like you said, people have forgotten about him. I'm not sure. I, I haven't seen enough of him uh, to know, but be, being at a high profile club like Chelsea and, and being in the, you know, the squad of, of, of 23, at least until he was sent on loan, you'd think 
just based, you know, out of, out of respect for Chelsea, that, that he'd have the ability to be one of our center backs. But I just, it's easy to forget about him. Yeah, and I, I don't know. It's just kind of, I feel like the U.S. has like, you know, this weird kind of thing where, you know, they, they don't always like to give chances to guys who, who play, you know, unless you're like a Christian Pulisic, you know, maybe they don't look fine, uh, you know, kindly on you if you if you go to play in Europe. I, I don't know. It's just like a personal thing. I, I feel like they're, they're too quick to reject players who, who move to, to Europe and maybe you're playing in, in the championship or something like that. And they, I think there's definitely like, you know, an MLS preference um, for whatever reason that is. For sure, for sure. Uh, alrighty, so I mean, back line at the end of the day, I'm I'm not. I see a lot of potential. We do have a lot of names that that you can slot in, and names that are playing at a very high level. Um, you know, Dest at Ajax, Brooks most notably uh, at Wolfsburg now, and you know potentially Yedlin at a uh, you know big big Newcastle. Uh, <laughs> So, so I'm happy with that. Now, let's talk central midfielders. It gets a little funky when, when you move forward because you have a lot of players who play a lot of positions, you know, who play multiple positions. Central midfield, um, who, who, who do we line up? Who are our top three, four options? Well, I think that's the question because, you know, it's, it's about formation, first of all, because Burhalter is, you know, playing that, you know, bizarre hybrid right, right back, you know, center mm-hmm. mid role, apparently, which I guess fits Tyler Adams. But I mean, I mean, I would just prefer to see Tyler Adams, you know, sitting deeper in that number six role um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, having, you know, Weston McKinney, obviously. And then, you know, that's the, the, the question is, who do you play alongside Weston McKinney? Um, you know, I, I'm not sure. Do you, do you slot Christian Pulisic into a more free role there? Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure yet. What do you guys? If think? I see Michael. If I see Michael Bradley lining up for for our national oh team God. again, I swear to God, I I, I can't even can't even believe it. I I, 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 I yeah. still think Michael has a couple good years with him. I don't know if he'll if he should be in the national team still. I think Michael gets a lot of hate because he's been such a staple in the national team for so long, and he's kind of been like. Uh, you know, what everyone looks up to and maybe he doesn't live up to his potential sometimes. I think he's to blame for a lot of things, but I think, you know, I think he's been one of the best midfielders the past decade. Uh, yeah, no, that that's totally fair. I, I'm fairly certain he's the only remaining uh, U.S. men's national team player who was at the 2010 World Cup. The only, I think, active player, if I'm not mistaken. So Altidore, I think. Yeah. Oh, Altidore, you're right. Oh my gosh, these guys. I feel like these guys have been around forever, man. But uh, no, that's funny. And then, and then, otherwise, you've you've seen, uh, you know, you, you could, like you said, you have Tyler Adams sitting deep. You could have Weston McKinney playing, you know, a sort of box to box role, like a very versatile player. Um, and then, if you're looking for an attacking option, you could play. I don't want to play Pulisic at, at attacking midfield. You could play Reyna at attacking midfield. Again, I don't know what's most natural for them, but we've seen them deployed there domestically. So potentially we see that, you know, translated to the national team. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just not sure, um, you know, Pulisic, I think he's done pretty well at the 10 role for, for the U.S. So, you know, I would be comfortable slogging him in there. Um, or, um, and then like you said, you know, Giorano is also an option, but, 
you know, he could also play on the left wing. I think Gio Reyna and Pulisic are actually, you know, remarkably similar in terms of their position and even their playing style. Um, but yeah, let's. What do you think, Nick? Who who do you think should that be that third final, one? No, I think there's a couple of interesting picks you could have. Uh, I know Bruce Arena really liked Sebastian Legett, and I think Burhalter has shown interest in him as well. I think Legett's a really good player. Uh, and then I think, do you guys know who Paxson Pomula is? I think that's how you say his name. He plays. I know, in the, I know the name. He plays yeah. for Kansas City, right? Or Dallas. Okay. FC Dallas, right. yeah. Um, I think he's a good choice. He doesn't really have a lot of experience in the national team. Uh, you know, I was always surprised when Legette would even get the start. You know, he scored a couple goals and he's had a couple really good performances, but he's still, I guess it's kind of a bias. He's still just like, a, to me, doesn't really stand out in MLS as much. But when he comes to the national team, he always seems to stand out. Um, but, yeah, I think that's that third spot's interesting. Uh, but, you know, honestly, I, I, what I could see them doing is having Bradley in the six and then Adams and McKenney. I could totally see Berhalter doing that for 2022. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, Bradley, he's kind of been the scapegoat, like you said. You know, as much as I like to hate on him, he's kind of an easy punching bag. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't mind seeing him – you know, at that six role and then have Adams and McKennie. I think that's actually a really strong midfield. Um, but then at the same time, you know, if we want to go more attacking, I would love to see Pulisic and, and Reyna on the, on the field at the same time because they do seem to occupy similar positions. Um, actually, here's what I'm thinking. Let, let's put, a, let's put yeah, Bradley at the six and then, you know, let's put McKennie and, and Adams at the, you know, whatever, eight or whatever. And then, you know, left wing, we can put, a, we can put Gio Reyna there. And then right wing, let's we can we can we can force uh, Pulisic to play a little out of position. I think at the right wing, because at the end of the day, you know, I don't I don't really want to see Jordan Morris on the right wing. Like I don't, I don't really care. Like you know what I mean? Yeah. Like Pulisic mm-hmm. is is going to be an infinitely you know better option even if he plays on the left. You know, typically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't it's know. Not, what are your guys' thoughts? It's not like you you oftentimes see Pulisic you know cutting in cutting in from the left wing onto his right and bending a, a shot in. It's not like that's his specialty anyway. Right. Um, you know, he, he, he has a lot of, you know, ways he can hurt you. He's very pacey. He's technical. His distribution's solid. So like you're saying, I don't, I don't mind playing him on the right. Uh, I, I'm not the coach, but right. <laughs> we'll, we'll play him on the right. Now with the midfield, I'm fine. I'll accept Michael Bradley if he can just if he can sit and do a good job. If he can just do his job, you know, not nothing crazy. Just do the simple things right. Then you know, let the rest, let the more creative players do their thing, and and I'm happy with that. I do want to see Aronson in the squad, though. I do. I do want him. I want him on the bench. Do you want remember him on the bench. Uh, Michael Bradley's uh, chip against Mexico yeah. from like half field? Mm-hmm. The thing, yep. the thing about yep. Michael that you get that maybe us as you know outsiders of the team maybe wouldn't realize is his leadership, you know, on and off the field. I think this is, you know, a diff- it's a unique situation with the U.S. team where they're just full of young players and they're trying to kind of rebuild. But you need a few players who have been there before to kind of lead them through it. I think for me, it'd be Bradley and, and Josie, uh, you know, but there's really no one else who's, who's going to have already gone through a qualifying process. You know, and those games can get really difficult. You're down in, you know, Honduras at 12 o'clock in the afternoon where it's really humid, the fans are throwing stuff at you, and you just have a bunch of 20-year-old kids trying their best. You kind of need someone to, you know, lead them down the tunnel and help them, 
you know, remain calm throughout the game. So very that's well a great point. Cause you know, one of the big problems has been lack of identity for this, for this team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Uh, and like, even from what I've read about Bradley, you know, he is definitely a, a very professional player. Um, and, and he, he, he probably is the best man to play that role for, you know, as mentor, if anything else, if he's not our starting midfielder. Um, so I, I agree with you there. Now we've pretty much, we've discussed our, we've, we've seemed to have made our decisions on our two starting wingers. If, if we're playing a four, three, three here, uh, our two starting wingers, yeah. Raina and Pulisic, Tim Weah is an interesting option. One that, you know, I think we're all hoping starts to kind of fill the boots of his, you know, of Tim Weah, of his father. Uh, but, but we haven't necessarily seen that full development yet. Yeah, and it's kind of frustrating for me is, you know, obviously Josie Altidore's been there at the center forward position for, you know, God knows who, how long, and he's a great option. But I feel like Timothy Weah, you know, people need to look at him a little more seriously. I think everyone likes to say, oh, he can play in the wing. Like, well, actually, his national position is as a mm-hmm. number nine. So, it, you know, you don't have to over, like, overcomplicate things here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Josh Sargent's another good option there. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I would just like to see, you know, them try to mix it up a little more. And I do not want to see Jossie's artist. Again, oh, yeah, you, know? Uh, I mean, you know, he's fine. Like I get that, you know, Burhalter trusts him or whatever, but I mean, there's, you just gotta, there's better options out there. I've actually this, seen Zardis play live a couple times and he has the worst first touch out of any <laughs> professional player that I've ever seen, but he scores goals for the national team, which is kind of interesting because I think he's, you know, a pretty average MLS striker, but when he gets in the national team, he always, even if it's just like a deflection, he always seems to score, but I don't know. I would want to see him. Maybe, maybe. But I mean, you know, is, is Sergeant, you know, the, the, the name we're looking at to fill that number nine role for the, for the next eight years? Is that who we're looking at? I prefer Wea at this point, just because, I don't know, Sergeant's just so demeaning. He's so small, you know? Yeah, but I mean, you saw what he did for the U17s. He was he's been he's been incredible for the youth sides. I I I, I want to give it. Well, the thing is, they're all young. I I don't know what I'm saying. They're yeah. all young. Yeah. Right. It's you just you, we're gonna have to, uh, assuming uh, you know, we, we we qualify for the next tournament, or you know, assuming, whatever, uh, we're gonna have to give everybody a chance. It might be a, a test run for for a lot of players in preparation for for 26. And I think these next few years are very pivotal because I think I haven't seen enough pro first first team games from Wea or Sargent. You know, I, I watch Sargent in the Bundesliga, but he's usually a sub. He's got good hold-up play, but he doesn't really seem to have uh, an eye for goal recently. Um, I'd love to see him over Wea in 2022. But I, I, think, I think Josie will probably find his way in the squad somehow. I think he's only 29. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's going to get older, but it's amazing know. to me. He seems, yeah. I mean, he seems just like a veteran. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. it, it's good real quick. It's, it's good that, uh, you know, again, that we have this problem that we have so many young players again, we maybe too many of them are untested, uh, which might force Josie or someone, you know, of that age into the squad. But this is going to be a problem that I think we were, we're going to have for the next, you know, for a very, very long time, because it's becoming more common for American players to go abroad, we're just going to have more young names that, you know, are potential, you know, 
potential names for the team sheet for for the U.S. Yeah, and um, that that kind of ties into our you know our next thing. I think. Well, we can just go over. Well, let's just go over our squad. I guess. Let's <laughs> just uh, yeah. So we have we have Stefan at goalkeeper, Yedlin at, at right back, uh, John Brooks and uh, Aaron Long at center back, left back Serginio Dest, uh, Michael Bradley, Tyler Adams, Wes McKenney. And then Gio Reyna, Christian Pulisic on the wings, and uh, I guess have we decided who, who do we want uh, Altador? What do you think, Jacob? Uh, man, I mean, look, I'm I'm going all in on the youngsters. We're starting Sergeant, but we're keeping Altador ready, uh, keeping him ready. I'm down. Uh, it's it's amazing. Half that squad plays in the Bundesliga right now. Right now, I mean, we talked a lot about him in our in our Bundesliga episode. But That's crazy. It is crazy. I mean, that starting eleven, those names are—they're not nobody. It's like a lot of players that we have fielded in previous World Cups. They're not nobodies. Yeah. So, put some respect on the U.S.'s name. <laughs> nah, I don't know about that. But. I don't. Know. I don't think we ever say that. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. <laughs> Give us eighteen years. All right. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Yeah. Just wait till twenty fifty. Anyway, um, you know, we talk about talent development so much and, you know, that goes back to, you know, the United States Soccer Federation as an organization and how incompetent they have been. I think at times, um, you know, Greg Berhalter was appointed, I believe, last year. Um, You know, one thing that just rubbed me the wrong way about that was, you know, his dad or not his dad, his brother was the one who appointed him, Jay Berhalter, who was, um, I think, GM of of uh, the, the Federation of the time. And, you know, it just, it seems like such a huge conflict of interest and they didn't even interview some of the, you know, names that I sh- thought I should have. I think Tata Martino was, uh, you know, he was a former coach of um, uh, Atlanta United and he ended up, I think he's uh, at Mexico now, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he wasn't even interviewed and I just thought the process was was really poor. And I guess, you know, what are you guys' thoughts on, on Burhalter as a co- coach? No, I think uh, Burhalter was, was really respected in MLS because, they play the really u- unique uh, style of play in Columbus that I think a lot of players admired. I think that was probably one of the main reasons, uh, you know, he was even looked at or speculated to get the job. But I, I, I agree. I think there's a ton of other coaches uh, that are, you know, in MLS or abroad that should have been given the chance. You know, personally, I think Peter Vermes is a great coach. I think what he's done with uh, Kansas City is extraordinary, you know, building, you know, I think they have the U S training center there. Now they've won championships, you know, countless open cup championships and MLS cup. And I think Jesse Marsh was another one. Uh, I think I listened to a podcast that he was on where he kind of talked about how he was really interested in the position, but was never really given much of a chance. Uh, and now he's, you know, Mike court might coach, uh, Dortmund next year. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, you he know, just won his first trophy with Salzburg. Yeah. yeah, I think uh, the so, U.S. Yeah. lacks a little bit of, of leadership, especially in not just like coaching roles, but uh, in like GM roles. I know uh, I read I'm reading a book by Bruce Arena uh, called What's Wrong With Us. And he talks about how, you know, Don Garber, who's the GM of MLS and the, uh, the GM of U.S. soccer, Sunil, the former GM, Sunil Gulati. They have uh, experience in finance and economics, but maybe not in, you know, the soccer side of it and the developmental side they're more 
you know, into the marketing of the game and gaining fans and, you know, making money. Uh, and I think maybe we lack a little bit of soccer leadership in those roles. Yeah. B- bigger conflict of interest than Bob Bradley selecting his son. No, it's really really all about nepotism here. It really is. Uh, I, I read, uh, you know, Avi, I think you sent a link uh, with the, the list of, of coaches who weren't even interviewed. Lopetegui, another one who, according to the article, at least, uh, you know, reached out to the U.S. Uh, about the position. Now, you know, who knows what that would have brought. Just another pretty notable name, uh, you know, wanting to potentially take take the head of, of the U.S. team. Um, but but. You know, we, we're just going to have to see what, what Berhalter can do uh, uh, moving forward, give, maybe give him a bit of time, but I don't know. Yeah, I think that the, the thing is, you know, being a new coach in a national team position is so difficult because you have your philosophy, but then at the same time, you have to, you know, get results, right? You know, and that's the, that's the big balance is, you know, Berhalter, it seemed like he was a little inflexible at the beginning. You know, he just kept trying to, you know, force, um, you know, round pegs into square holes. Um, and, you know, he was just trying to get, you know, players to play a style that didn't necessarily suit them, which is a possession style or whatever. And, you know, on one hand, it seems like, you know, people want that, you want that identity and stuff. But at the same time, you have to question, um, you know, at what point do you do you try to, you know, just focus on getting the result? And I think that's what Bruce Arena was so good at was, you know, getting results uh, up until, you know, obviously Trinidad and Tobago, um, you know, but, you know, finding a way to, to get the best players in the field and, you know, just find a way to win and adjusting to each opponent. And, you know, I think the reality is American soccer is not going to be able to dominate games against, you know, top level, you know, opponents for, for a, lot, a long time. Um, you know, yeah, you'd like to see them impose their will against, you know, a Honduras or whatever, but I think Burhalter, you know, has been a little too inflexible, um, you know, changing a style against Mexico in the gold cup final, you know, we kept trying to play out from the back and it was just embarrassing. That was just, yeah. that was so frustrating to watch. So frustrating to watch. Yeah. Um, but I, I agree with what you said, uh, you know, Nick, I think uh, too much of the Federation is focused on profits and not, you know, long-term vers- vision for, you know, making American soccer better. I Brings also us back. Go, go ahead, Jacob. All right, sure, sure. And no, it brings us back to what we were saying earlier about the pay to play. It starts from the very, the very bottom. So it starts, you know, yeah, right when you start playing. It's, and that's the difference in mentality between America and Europe is in Europe, they understand that, you know, sports aren't really about making money. It's about, you know, prestige or whatever you want to call it. And here, you know, sports are just seen as a, another business. Um, so that's just the I also think, I uh, Greg Berhalter is, you know, he's pretty young to be a national team coach. I feel like he's, he's 46, you know, that's older, a lot older than us, but uh, you know, I, he only coached for in Columbus for five years. Uh, he coached a team in Sweden, which I think a lot of people may not know. Um, but he only retired like 10 years ago. And uh, I think that's something to note, you know, he kind of rose up really fast, maybe a little bit too fast to, develop his style of play and you know especially for a national team that's such a big position that's bigger than you know any league or you know MLS team and to implement a style of play uh, you know that that early on in your career is you know it's big task so 
like you're saying, he's so young. It's a, you know, it's a reason that so many questions are being asked. It's different than say Frank Lampard, who, you know, just finished playing, you know, four or five years ago, you know, maybe, maybe, I don't even know, a few years ago. Um, Chelsea fans wanted Lampard in. It's not like, you know, Americans were screaming Berhalter's name. Yeah. I mean, this is. Yeah. With all, yeah. With all due respect to Berhalter, you know, I hope he succeeds, but at the same time, I love to see Jesse Marsh appointed. I think he's by far the best option. Um, And, you know, he gets it right. You know, I don't know if you guys saw that video when they were playing in the Champions League against Liverpool you know, he was like, we're going we're gonna to hit it. Like, you know, he was like, we got to hit him. You know, we got to come out strong. And they almost beat Liverpool at Anfield. And I think, you know, he just understands that mentality. You need to win games. And international soccer is, is like that. You know, it's not like club soccer where you play, you know, 40-odd games a year. It's, you know, you have – it's it's knockout competitions. It's it's so much about psychology. And I'm not sure Burhalter is the right man for that. Yeah, that's very fair. Yeah, so um, anything else to add here, guys? Um, no, I think, I think, think you nailed it, Avi. Yeah. Right, go ahead, Nick. Well, I think I think Berhalter also, you know, people may not know that, you know, he had a pretty good career also. Played in Europe, uh, played for Crystal Palace and teams in Germany. Uh, I think maybe that adds a little bit more credibility to him. But still, yeah. I th- you know, I think – That's fair. You know, maybe give him a little bit, a couple more years, see what he does. I, I, I'm sure he'll be the coach in 2022. Yeah. I don't see them, you know, removing him from the position, you know, so quickly, especially you know with his brother. And seems <laughs> seems to seems to have formed a relationship with uh, Ernie Stewart, who's I think he's the GM or sporting director. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. With all, I, I think I get but, mixed up with all these positions. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, you know, so they've kind of formed a partnership that seems to they seem to like each other and they can kind of help each other out so we'll see what they do i want to get your thoughts on you know the past coaches like you know jurgen klinsman and bruce arenas i was just curious you know what, what were your impressions of them and, and um yeah uh i'm a huge bruce arena fan i think he's kind of like a teddy bear uh seems to be like like the grandfather of the team and someone that you know all the players like to play for he's he was he brought like a fun aspect to the game and he he won uh, which was, you know, the biggest thing. I think in 2002, they made it to the quarterfinals, maybe. Yep, or the yep. round, yeah. And they um, should have probably advanced or yeah. at least gotten a chance because the Germany handball. But that's another topic. The thing about him is he never even really played soccer until he was a senior in high school. He was a lacrosse player. Uh, yeah, but coached at Cornell, coached at Virginia, kind of moved his way up to MLS and then got the U.S. job. But, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think he's the best U.S. coach of all time. And then when you go to Jurgen Klinsmann, I'm not really sure what they were trying to do there. I think maybe they were trying to implement a new style of play. Uh, he coached Germany and coached Bayern Munich, which are two really you know respectful teams. But I don't, I don't think a lot of the players really liked him personally. I'm not, I, you know, I'm obviously not one of the players, but I've read interviews and there was a huge thing that the Athletic came out with a huge article about players not agreeing with his style of play and you know disagreeing with his practice sessions and I think Michael Bradley and Josie had to come together one day in training and you know take a few extra laps kind of talk about what are we doing here with with Jurgen Klinsmann is he the right guy for this role Um, you know I think we had a successful World Cup in 2014 as good as we probably could have done with that team but I think the players' morale is something that's really important. I don't think he really meshed with them as well. 
also landing, leaving Landon Donovan off the oh, roster. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Chris so, yeah. Wondolowski, you know, when he missed that chance against Belgium, I, I immediately said Donovan would have finished yeah. that, you know. But yeah, I think, you know, Bruce Arenas, uh, obviously he's going to be remembered, unfortunately, for that Trinidad and Tobago game. But what he also did in 2002, I think, you know, you can't oversell, you know, how, how you know, incredible that run was. Um, you know, they only won two games during that run, but, you know, still to, to reach the quarterfinals and, and almost reach the semifinals of the World Cup is, is quite an achievement. And, you know, that team, you know, it had, you know, solid names, but it wasn't, you know, it's not a, a team that you expect to go that far. Whatever, you well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember the Belgian. I'm trying to remember the name. What happened to Julian Green? Oh my God! Who knows? Who knows? He's lost. He's in the second division of Germany, yeah. I believe. I just saw I mean, a video of him today. He assisted someone. So uh, good for good for him. Yeah. No, it's funny because Julian Green, right? He's like he was supposed to be like the next Freddie Adu or whatever. And yeah. I don't know. It's funny how everyone just kind of latches on to you know one guy, and he's. I mean, he scored against Belgium, so credit for that. He did. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, what, he's kind of falling yeah. Off. Also, what, his hairline is, is really bad. <laughs> <laughs> like, his hairline, like he looks like he's thirty years old, and this dude's like only twenty-four. So, All right, like we said, no disrespect to Bearhalter. Like that was straight disrespect to Julian Green. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, I love Julian Green. I just don't love his hairline. Maybe he'll make his uh, resurgence. We'll see. I hope so, man. Yeah. It's kind of interesting how Klinsman was so focused on German players. Like he had all these yeah. dual national German players like Jermaine Jones and, um, you know, there's a couple other guys and obviously Julian Green. But it's just kind of interesting how, how heavily focused he was in Germany. And I think, I don't know if that had any influence on, um, you know, Christian Pulisic going to Germany or anything like that. But it's kind of interesting how there's such a strong connection between Germany and, and the U.S. And I think bringing some of those dual nationals to the team in certain instances shook up the whole vibe around the team. I know Timmy Chandler. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He used to tell players, uh, you know, if you're feeling injured, just don't play in the game. It's just a friendly. But, you know, it's the national team. Any game, whether it's a friendly or a competitive game, should matter and you should want to play in it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think some of the players that he brought in were, were interesting. And, you know, obviously Jermaine Jones is – I think he's one of the best players we've ever had, but did, you know, did some of those players have, you know, the right idea about the national team? I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah. I love Jermaine Jones. That goal oh against Portugal is always etched in my mind. Uh, he, he was, he was the best player for us in that world cup. He, yeah. he brought something different. He brought the energy we needed. He had some, some Carlos Puyol vibes in the midfield for real. <laughs> He, uh, he gave a really interesting interview, too. I, I don't know who was with him. It might have been The Athletic also. But he, um, I don't know, he's, he's an interesting guy off the field. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's for another day. We can, we can keep reminiscing uh, about the 2014 World Cup team. <laughs> but uh, another Captain thing I Marvel. Wanna... Captain Marvel. Who's Captain Clint, Marvel? Clint Dempsey, the commentary. I love Clint Dempsey, dude. Oh, my God. I wish he could still play. I think he would be a, the best striker still if he played, dude. Yeah. So clinical. And then it's incredible what he did at Fulham too. I mean, he had over 50 goals, I believe. I mean, he had, and then he got that move to Spurs, which didn't pan out, but still, I mean, he had some of those great free kicks and stuff. And he scored against Juventus in the Europa Club, uh, Europa League semifinal. Uh. Oh my God. <laughs> anyway, um, so one more thing I want to touch on today was um, the, the women's uh, pay dispute. Um, 
you know, I think we've heard about a lot about this, and they just um, they lost a, a a lawsuit, which they are appealing um, now. But you know, there's some concerns. I think you know, obviously, you know, we all would like to see equal pay, but I think this issue, like a lot of things um, in life, is more complicated than you know than it often seems. And I think the biggest issue um, is the the men's and the women's have different um, pay structures. You know, their unions negotiate separate contracts. Um, so the women actually get paid, you know, there's a group of women who get paid, um, I think, around $100,000, mm-hmm. um, you know, regardless of if they get selected for the national team or not. And then there's another group of women who get paid to their NWSL clubs, I believe. And the difference is the men, they get paid by, you know, if they get selected for the national team. Um, so, you know, there's a little difference in the pay structure there. Um, but the, the main argument is, you know, um, you know, if you look at the numbers, I guess technically the women have been paid more than the men over the last, I don't know, 10 years. But mm-hmm. the, the difference is, you know, they've been winning World Cups and the U.S. has failed to qualify for a World Cup on the men's side. And so, so the big idea was, you know, if the men's were performing at the same rate as the women's, they would be getting paid more. Um, so I think that's, that's the crux of the argument here. And, um, you know, one, one thing I would like to see is the men's and the women's collaborate a little bit more. You know, the men's basically said, um, you know, the men's union said, like, this isn't our issue. And they can, they kind of been more supportive recently. But, you know, one thing I heard um, was, you know, an idea of joint training camps or just something to, to really, you know, bring the teams together. And I don't know, what are your guys' thoughts on that? That would be very interesting, joint training camps. Um, now, I, I, that's the first I've heard of that. Do you know what that would entail? Would that entail friendlies against each other or more so fitness? Or what would that I think maybe just, you know, training like together, not necessarily games, but I think just something to, you know, kind of bring the steward together because, you know, we are supposed to be one team. And I think oftentimes it's it's quite separate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. You know, I think just you saying uh, about how, you know, they have different contracts with their salaries. You know, the U.S. has that big slogan, one nation, one team. It doesn't really sound like Right now, we're, we've been one nation, one team. I think the teams have been really divided recently. And, uh, you know, I, I think the women obviously deserve more. You know, they've, uh, they've been the best women's team, you know, the past 20, 30 years. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm all for supporting them. And interestingly enough, like, I, I don't know, I just, I, I didn't realize this, but, um, you know, the women actually outdraw the men, you know, both on TV and in person. Um, which which I thought was interesting because yeah. you know the argument against oh you know women should be paid more because oh they don't draw as much um, you know revenue or whatever but I think you know if you look at the facts is you know the the, the women's World Cup last summer was you know a huge success and I think um, you know the, the federation needs to you know really invest in, in the women's team because they're the most successful team that they have you know yeah. on any level so um, I mean yeah, yeah for, forgetting I mean just morally speaking, you know, it's, it's, you know, we shouldn't be having this issue. These are soccer teams. You know, we, we shouldn't, this shouldn't even be the issue we're discussing. We should be discussing how do we get better, you know, on the, on the pitch. We right. shouldn't be worrying about these off the pitch discussions, um, you know, try whatever. Um, but, but, but yeah, I lost my train of thought here. Um, it's okay. I, I got yeah. to say, um, the the U.S. like the lawyers for the for the U.S. Uh, Soccer Federation, you know they um they had an argument where it was basically like, you know women are inferior you know in their sporting capabilities to men, which they eventually dropped and walked back. But 
I mean, I was thinking, you know, who, who's, who thought that was a good idea? And, you know, how can that, you know, possibly be like your stance? You know, these are supposed to be your own players. Um, you know, so it, it was deeply disappointing to see that. And I know they backtracked, but um, it was it was still surprising. And I was surprised that the lawsuit got thrown out in the first place, but um, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not a legal expert, though, so. You know, and I think even the last World Cup shows just how much of an impact they can have, you know, outside of the field. Uh, uh, I think Megan Rapinoe is, you know, a really good example of that and, you know, speaking her opinion and being a voice for a lot of, you know, people. And I think that team's something that we'll look back on, especially in the last World Cup as, you know, a big uh, momentum in the history of U.S. soccer. So, Yeah, I was, yeah. was going to say from a business standpoint, I remember now, forgetting, you know, how many people are watching the women. Uh, I don't have any statistics. Obviously, maybe you do. But, you know, in terms of kit sales and everything, just the marketability of the women's team far exceeds, you know, that of the men's team. And I mean, even like I said, it's a morally they should be, you know, the pay structure should be the same. But if they're going to look at it from a business standpoint, a profit perspective, they should be doing everything they can to capitalize on the success of the women. Uh, if anything, you know? Yeah, it, it doesn't make much sense at all. Um, yeah, I, I, I just want to talk about a, a little bit more about that World Cup, actually. I mean, I thought, you know, there's some you know, great moments. You know, Rose Lavelle, you know, is, is a player that really just kind of stood out. And, you know, like you said, marketability, you know, to be honest, there's some, you know, men's national team players, you know, we're playing friendly. And I actually don't know, like, who they are. Like, I've never even heard about them. But, like, you know, with the women's, you know, it's the same, you know, cast of characters, you know, for the most part. And they're recognizable. They're marketable. They're, you know, they're great personalities. And I'm not sure the same could always be said about, you know, men's national team's players. I, I heard, you know, I read an article and it was basically like, you know, <laughs> kind of bashing American, you know, um, men's soccer players saying that they don't have any personality, which I thought that was a little harsh, but I don't know, it's kind of interesting to, to hear that argument. But, yeah, like you said, it seems like we've had a much more seamless transition between generations uh, on the women's side than we have with the men. With the men, it was, you know, Landon Donovan, Clint Dempsey, Tim Howard, Michael Bradley, and Josie Altidore when he's performing. Those are the, the five staples. <laughs> All five of them are, are either retired or, or near retirement. Um, and we keep, you know, like Julian Green, he was supposed to kind of, you know, lead that next generation. And, and now we don't know where he is on the women's side. You know, uh, you know, we had, we had Abby Wambach, uh, you know, succeeded by, you know, Alex Morgan, Megan Rapinoe. We have players stepping in. Julie Ertz is a great example of, of a player who's emerged as a leader. Rose Lavelle, players that aren't going away anytime soon, um, which is, is kind of neat, I think. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the formula for yeah. a successful national team. You know, I think that's why the U.S. maybe, you know, we're kind of – the men's team is a mess right now with, you know, I, I think it's not ideal to have a bunch of 20-year-old kids kind of owning the national team right now. You kind of want to have, you know, an Abby Wambach or a Hope Solo to kind of, you know, so you know mentor, mentor those Rose Lavelles or Tobin Heaths, you know, and then, you know – then it's those players who mentor the next generation and, you know, they kind of show the ropes. So I think that's something the U S is going to struggle on the men's side, but the women seem to have it down. So. Mm-hmm. I just wish Josie yeah, Altador was a little bit better. 
you know, <laughs> just, uh, you know, like, like Avi Wambach, who was an absolute menace in front of goal, mentoring uh, those younger players, but <laughs> beggars can't be choosers. <sighs> yeah. Um, so I think, uh, have we, have we all gotten everything out we wanted to say on this? I think so. I think yeah, obvious Mike might obvious be, obvious Mike might be gone, <laughs> but, uh, that's all right. Uh, I think we're, uh, just about at time anyway. So, um, first of all, Nick, thank you so much again for joining us. That was a lot of fun. That was, that was a lot of fun. Um, hey, thanks for having me guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, thank you everyone for tuning in. Make sure to check out our Twitter at Fluid Footy Pod. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever that may be. Um, and we, were, we will catch you guys next time. Shane Maximus, underwing. And you got two men down just being him. They wearing Gucci. So ain't Gucci. Because you know.